Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Life List. Great to be back with you here. This is George Armistead, and I am with both Alvaro Jaramillo and Molly Brown. How are you doing, guys? Hello. Hey. Yeah, doing good. Nice. Feels like fall. Nice rainy day. Sure does. Crisp and cool. <laughs> yeah, here yeah. it's foggy in California. Oh, I mean, not California, but where I am, it's foggy. Nice. That can be interesting, too, I guess, for, for some of these birds. Yeah, some sometimes. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you could see them, but yeah. <laughs> no short-tailed albatrosses out in the harbor there? No, no, no. That turned out to be a false alarm. Ah. But... Mm. But, well, you know, we'll see a wild flying one one of these days somewhere. Yeah. Nice. What about you, Molly? I know you've been doing some seabirding. It seems like you've been all over the place lately. What's, what have you been up to? Yeah, a little bit. It doesn't feel like I've done a lot of birding. Um, but a few weeks ago, I did go out on a, a Hatteras Pelagic, which I had done. Um, and I think I talked about this on a previous episode. My first Pelagic was this spring in Hawaii. I was super nervous because I usually get really seasick. Um, but we went off of Kauai and it was great. Uh, Alvaro was there, (laughs) you know, we talked about it. Uh, so I thought I'd try, you know, slightly rougher waters in the East. And, um, yeah, I, I love being out there and just seeing what birds are, you know, 30 miles offshore or so. Um, we had really great numbers and all the expected stuff. Um, nothing too crazy. I was, again, on a lot of medicine, so I was very happy and sleepy for a lot of it, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Did the, uh, it wasn't too blustery out there for you, and did the, did the black cap petrol, pet, did the black capped petrols, easy for me to say, <laughs> did they, uh, did they report for duty? Yeah. Yeah. We had great looks at them. I think, um, I think the eBird checklist had 40 or so. Oh, wow. Um, that's Yeah, that's a good we, number. We had good numbers mm-hmm. from from what I was happy with them anyway. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Nice. Nice. Alvaro, what have you been doing, man? Well, you know, other than other than uh, local birding where there's a lot of geese showing up now, um, it's not really, we're not in a place that gets a lot of geese. Central Valley in California get, get a lot of geese, but they've been kind of blasted out offshore winds and all these kinds of weather phenomena. So that's kind of been fun, but uh, we're wrapping up our pelagic season. We have one more scheduled trip. And uh, last weekend though, was one of those really great days out. Um, And, you know, you probably all heard about that big storm that came into the West, right? That was Sunday. Yeah. We were out offshore on Saturday, and there had been a front on Thursday. So we had oh this gosh. window. You know, people are like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, it's <laughs> you're between the storm. But it was really the calm before the storm. And in fact, we had to, you know, we were watching the weather, knowing that the winds were going to pick up and so on. We had to get out a cup, you know, not over an hour early, just leave. But uh, just so to avoid those winds that were coming in. But it was amazing. Like we went out there and really close to shore. I mean, almost, almost close enough. By by one mile, I could have gotten Manx Shearwater for my, you know, local area five mile list for my house. So oh, wow. uh, you know, 
we were, you know, and, and for those that don't know, Manx Shearwater's Atlantic bird shows up in the Pacific sometimes. We went further out, found whales, and eventually this big group of Rizzo's dolphins with northern right whale dolphins with also groups of um, 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 Pacific white-sided dolphins. And there was a leech of storm petrel, which is really rare for us. Uh, ended up seeing short-tailed shearwater, Lazan albatross, five species of shearwater, three species of storm petrels, two species of albatross. And then we came back to port and the northern gannet that's been hanging around in California was sitting there on the break wall, like the best views we've ever had. Everybody was just like toasting it as one of the best, most exciting trips ever. Wow. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, just sort of sandwich in between the storms, shorter than the usual trip. But it was just, you know, it just was kind of magic how it all came together. One of those birding days that people, you just feel good about, you know. And, yeah. You know. That's awesome. It was wow. super. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> and and the weather wasn't that bad, actually. So Again, so, uh, it's been out yeah. there a while now, yeah? Yeah. It, I mean, I, I, I want to say it's almost 10 years, you know? So yeah, it's that's like, wild. Yeah. I mean, it must yeah, we, be the we, loneliest we, gannet in the world. I know. Wrong ocean. Again, it's weird to think we saw Manx Shearwater and Northern Gannet on the Pacific, you know? But <laughs> that gannet, we don't know if it's a male or female, but we've we call it Morris because, you know, like the genus is Morris with a U. Oh, so nice. it's kind of a joke. Morris. Morris is mis- yeah. yeah. So so there's old Morris, you know. Yeah. So you could call him Mo Base if you really wanted to. That's yeah. right. We could yeah. go Mo Base. <laughs> yeah. That that could yeah, that could happen. Yeah, I like that. No, uh boy, so that's that's great. It's it's sort of a good way to wrap up the pelagic season. Nice. Well, don't like go that. don't go getting everybody all our Atlantic birds. I'm hoping to start running some pelagics over here. And if you get everybody oh. all our birds over there, then there's, you know, you're, you're just leaving, leaving scraps for the rest of us here. Well, <laughs> don't be seeing wedge-tailed shearwaters on the wrong ocean or stuff like that. <laughs> no you promises. Know. No promises. Later, we'll talk about what's allowed and what's not allowed. So. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> amenable. Some, some birds would just not be reported to eBird if they take away from, you know. In, in fact, that's what we should do with endemics, country endemics. We should have like international protocol. If they're seen in a new country, they're just not reported. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so like that they get blocked just to maintain bird. peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, that that'd be really in uh in line with the uh the citizen science behind uh eBird. I think we should definitely pursue that. Yeah. That's right. We'll <laughs> we'll just block them out from eBird so that all all you know, so Argentina doesn't have to fight with, you know, Chile and Peru with Bolivia. It's just, you know, keep it all happy. Nobody steals endemics. Endemics, endemic stealing has been happening much oh, too often. Yeah. It's not cool. <laughs> not cool at all. Yeah. 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 The U.S. doesn't care right now, but wait till, you know, um, red cockaded woodpecker is seen in, um, Cuba. Oh boy, oh, that would God. cause an international <laughs> that problem. Would, that would be infuriating. <laughs> I would be incandescent with rage were that to transpire. <laughs> <laughs> Not allowed. Nope. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of other border crossings, Molly, I know you recently headed up to what my college pr- professor used to call God's country. Up there in uh, in Canada, 
Um, <laughs> I, I think it was mostly a business trip though. Yeah. Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, it, I was just in, in Nova Scotia in and around Halifax, uh, sort of a last minute thing. So I, I didn't have much prep time and not much free time for birding, but I, I picked up what I could. We had some outdoor meetings, so that was nice and convenient. Um, but yeah, it was beautiful. I was totally blown away. I, I think we have a pretty nice uh, fall showing usually here around West Virginia and in the mountains, but it was really pretty up there. I haven't really done like a New England fall trip or anything, but it was just just gorgeous and just so many lakes and just p- picturesque views. So it was the nice leaves, to just get out. leaves and, turning, the foliage looking good up there. Yeah, it was perfect. Way, way different than here this year. Yeah, uh, it's, so that was really fun. It's just starting around here. I was walking the dog and I found like one of these, like, I guess it's like a red maple and it's just like, it's like sherbet orange, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I like stood there like, wow, like, what is this thing? You know, I was just like blown away looking at it. The dog's like, can we go? And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can keep moving. Yeah. That's I'm, really cool. I've never been to the Maritimes or to Newfoundland. It's sort of kind of hmm. a, a beacon of interest that I have to get out there one day. Yeah. yeah. I, I've always wanted to do a you know summer trip up to Newfoundland, so now I'm hoping I return soon for <laughs> more meetings and actually extend it. But uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, did, high on did, my list too. Molly, did you do enough commerce that you ended up like having a bunch of Canadian coins on you, and you suddenly realize you're walking around with forty pounds worth of money? <laughs> with the- no, I can't say I did. Okay, so you were all digital because. The coins are huge, you know, the toonies. Oh, oh, the toonies man. and the loonies, right? The loonies and the toonies, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and and the I hadn't really handled like dollar bills, but they're like they're so plasticky. It's I didn't realize how different their money was. Yeah, it's you you can put them through paper. the wash <laughs> and then they'll still come out nice, you know. Hmm. Not like American money just disintegrates yeah. in the wash. I let me tell you. Disintegrates <laughs> everywhere as far as I can figure. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I've got a lot of Canada I want to do as well. I've got, uh, um, yeah, I, I'd like to do a summer trip as well. I'd like to do a winter trip up there, you know, do the gulls and do the, you know, mm-hmm. frigid north and maybe see, see St. John's, you know, and in early winter when there's still quite a few songbirds coming around and, and concentrated up there. I think that'd be a ton of fun. And one of the places I am dying to go, uh, which I feel like is, a little bit of a kind of a secret spot, um, but becoming less so all the time. And certainly after this week is, um, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, is Tadoussac in Quebec, where it kind of it kind of hit people's radar. What was it like three, four years ago when uh, Ian Davies and a, and, a, and a handful of other folks were up there? And I, the Canadians and the, and the Quebec folks I know have been doing, you know, migration uh, counts there at Tadoussac for years and, and have known that it's a real concentration point. But I think it was Memorial Day weekend a few years ago, they had just astronomical flight and astronomical numbers and 
it's like six figure Blackburnian warblers in a day and like 70,000 Tennessee warblers, you know, and you get video of these things flying between people's legs and going crazy. You, you and, have to wear a puffy jacket so they bounce off you. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like flying, Seriously. flying darts. Got to be careful up there. Might, uh, <laughs> might, somebody might lose an Especially eye. Tennessee. Yeah. Tennessee. We could oh yeah. Really real hurt. sharp. Yeah. Real sharp beak on those. Yeah. Good for nectaring, but man, if they hit you in the eye, no good at all. Yeah. yeah. I have a like a list of bookmarks of eBird checklists I like, and that's one of them. And oh. <laughs> I just like to pull that up and look through it and try to comprehend it sometimes. Yeah. It's mind boggling. I've got to do that. Somewhere. It really is. Yeah. And then, of course, the big news this week was they've got a banding station up there going now, and they caught this tyrant flycatcher. And I think they were trying to decide. I forget what they were trying to decide what what it, what what it was like just generally, right? And then somebody I think was like, "This looks like an Elania," and and then Alvaro, I know you got onto that and produced that nice video. Folks should definitely check that out. Um, but yeah, t- walk us through that bird, Al. I mean, that's a bird you know. I've seen him a lot down there in South America, but I certainly don't know him the way you do. So the I woke up and had this message, you know, of like. Uh, Elenia, white crested Elenia in, in Tadusak, right? I think it's, is it Tadusak? That's, that's the pronunciation. I don't know. I, c- got a I couldn't big say. Big accent on the final. You're syllable. the Canadian expert here. You know, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll have people phone in. Yeah. yeah. Not just a rock hound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like, and I look at these pictures. I'm like, oh God, you know, this, I, I think this looks like a small build Elenia. And, and I just posted very quickly. I think it's a small build Elenia. I'll, you know, I'll give you more info later because I had to do a bunch of things. Then I thought, you know, I could write this elaborate Facebook post or something and explain, or I could actually put together a few photos that I have and make a little video of what I, what I'm talking about. That's what I did. And sort of thinking about the two most migratory species that look like this, the Chilean white crested Elenia, which is a population that's different from the uh, resident white crested Elenias. And then this small build Elenia. And one of them is essentially a Patagonian forest, the Chilean one, essentially. Uh, it extends a little further north. And then the other one is in the east. So Uruguay, southern Brazil, Argentina, and they both migrate well to the north in South America, like real long distances. I know people sort of think, oh, it's all South America. It's pretty, but these are big distances. So yeah. these guys go, if they go 180 degrees the wrong direction on their when they're trying to get south again, right? So they're wintering in, let's say, Venezuela. They're trying to get south, but they're, compass is off. They go the opposite direction, north, and they wind up in Tadoussac, right? So that's uh, that's why I, these two are the, the main ones that might appear in North America. And um, and I I look through others, and it's like, well, it doesn't look like them. And then I went through the ID, you know, which you can watch the video for the ID, but I, I think it's a small Bilania. They have feather for DNA, so it'll be an interesting test of like, you know, is, is Alvaro just BSing or, right. or does, you know, is there something to this, like watching them over the years, well, uh, just putting together thoughts on what yeah. they look like? I saw, I saw it. You did an excellent job with it as, as uh, anyone would expect. And, and, and I <laughs> you know those birds so well. Um, 
you know, I two questions. Okay. Um, one is is that definitely what's happening? Is that these birds from you know these these austral migrants, these those two uh, tyrant flycatchers you mentioned, is that they they perform one successful migration north and then they go the wrong way, or is it possible that the first migration they do they just completely overshoot? their wintering grounds and actually are knocking around in the boreal forest of Canada or Minnesota or who knows where the interior someplace where they're not found. And then when the boreal fall hits, they try to, they try to move again, either due to weather or I don't know, whatever influence. And then they get found at migration sites or, or could both of those things happen? I guess, um, that's one. That's one question. Um, the other question is, uh, like I said, I've seen quite a few of these birds, but I, in in my limited experience with them, I feel like small builds actually small build and white crested Chilean white crested are not actually that hard to separate in in my experience. Like, I feel like white crested always has a real obvious white crest, and small build just doesn't usually sh- usually shows like a pretty rounded head and. Uh, so are they as hard as people think? And what do you think about the, you know, how they get into the wrong spots? Uh, well, the first one, you really don't know, do you? Like you're just looking at what shows up. Um, but wouldn't you have a bunch of spring records? California vagrants, for example, we have spring warbler vagrants, and they're often not exactly the same ones as the fall vagrants. And so over, you know, thinking of California as a a test scenario on most of these fall vagrants are mirror image, sideways mirror image Mm -hmm. kind of vagrant rather than 90 degree or 180 degree. Yeah. And then you think, okay, so why aren't the, you know, um, to, you know, my thought is that the ones that don't perform the the first migration correctly, so a small build lania that goes south or off to some other spot in the f- first um, southern hemisphere autumn, they're going to show up somewhere else. Like those are the ones that show up as vagrants in Chile or somewhere else. Um, and they may not make it back. They may or may not. And then to me, it just seems like it, it's logical that you could get some issue kicking in that isn't lifelong, that kicks in in that first migration southward where they go, oh, I think I'm going south, but I'm actually going north. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't know. Until we get to the point where we have little transmitters that we could, you know, put put on things, you know. Yeah, which we're closer to all the time, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, Elenia identification you know, if you see juvenile white crested lanias, they have no white and they yeah. have a really small crest. Right, so, right. But the juveniles, you're not going to see at this time of year. The juveniles right. you would see during the Southern Hemisphere fall, which would be kind of February, March, April. So so I, I think they might not be that difficult to separate, but um, but it takes – you know, it takes experience. And I think most North American birders just have never had to do it. So, um, you know, and there are other things that are, you know, lesser alenias and 
Olivaceous sure. Alanias. If you yeah. add those in the mix, you're like, oh boy, you know. Um, yeah. No, then it would get a lot more complex. Yeah. I was I was yeah. really thinking about the two two separating these two austral migrant um, yeah species. Yeah. Alania is a nice name. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's who's expecting, um, you know, might yeah. uh, think about Alania as a, it'd be a, a beautiful name yeah. for a child. Yeah. Right. Phoebe Alania, <sighs> and then yeah. you know people would be like, do you like birds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that kid would never like birds that kid would be like a bird hater after being called phoebe elania but mm, mm, mm. could be a tough i think road. i don't yeah. know be tougher to be called watson though yeah or pyroloxia yeah, yeah. <laughs> faint of pepla that's kind of nice actually cowbird you just call him pepla <laughs> cowbird <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. some beautiful bird names, and then perhaps some not be- so beautiful ones. That's uh, worthy of worthy of consideration. Yeah. 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 Well, um, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff on that, and uh, I feel like we could really dig into. You and I have talked quite a bit about the austral vagrancy situation, and and uh, it's fun to kind of peel back the layers there and and uh, think about how these birds get where they get and, uh, and where they're coming from and what their journey might be. So pretty cool on that Elania. And of course I know the Chicago folks are all thinking, man, if we, if they can count that, you know, if this gets accepted as small build up there, then, you know, we can count that Elania that showed up in Chicago 10 years ago, ago or so when, uh, you know, which I think you and I and a number of others all pr- pretty, pretty certain that that was a small build as well. Um, oh, there's stuff happening in the background. Oh boy. Uh, don't want to give it away. <laughs> Heavens. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Gossip to it, be told. Yeah. It, I, uh, I gotta, I mean, I don't know if Molly, you've been down to places where there's a bunch of Elenias, but I, even though I identify them and I spend my time with them, I can't stand like a Elenia that shows up that's not calling and I'm on a tour because then you have to like, you have to put your, you know, neck out and say, "Oh, it's a whatever." But uh, it's nice when they call. Th- th- yeah, it's, it's they're just like in Pinnax in a way. Like, yeah, I always feel a certain level of stress, like when I'm non-calling in Pinnax. I feel like I'm equipped to deal with it, but I, I don't want to do it on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you feel similarly <laughs> or your thoughts. Both of you as birders, what do you think about that? Well. I think there's the scenario when I'm out birding and then a guiding scenario. And I think my, you know, how much I care, how stressed I am is totally different in those two situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. There's like, if you see some, if you're by yourself and you see something you don't know, you're like, Oh, let's, you know, let's tease this apart. Let's spend some time. on This This would be fun. (laughs) But if you got people like, you know, so what is it? it? Yeah. Can I count it? What is it? What is it? What is it? You're like, I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. yeah. Give me time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that, that kind of is a good segue is because, you know, those birds, they are, they are often vocal and that helps us uh, tremendously when they are. And uh, we, we've been getting some good feedback from folks. One of the regular questions we get um, uh, all of us on tour and in general, especially, 
you know, new birders in particular, I think, are really amazed when you can identify birds not just by sight but by sound. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit today about ear birding and learning bird vocalizations, tricks for how you learn them, what you listen for when you're listening um, for birds. So maybe perhaps we can talk about some of our our favorite bird vocalizations as well. Um, and uh, yeah, like Molly, what would you say if if somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, I am you know." I'm fair. I'm 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 digging into this ear birding thing. I am ready to try to figure this out. You know, maybe uh, maybe you have advice for those folks that are ready to give it a shot. Oh gosh! Well, um, opening <laughs> you know opening remarks on this discussion. I'm quite fond of birding by ear. I I think I'm happier hearing birds than seeing them. And I, I just enjoy the challenge of it, too. Uh, but that certainly was not always the case. Um, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I was getting more and more into birding and was totally neglecting birding by ear um, until one day I decided I'm just going to I'm going to spend six months. It was like a few months before spring migration. And I was like, this is going to be my season to really start nailing this down. So I went out and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to start with something super common. I'm going to memorize Northern Cardinal. And then it was like, okay, they make 15 different sounds <laughs> that I hear on like my morning walk. And it was so hard to get over the hump of just learning the common species. Um, but, but that's what I focused on. I mean, I picked very basic things, the most common warblers. I, I was really just focusing on that like one mile walk that I took my dog on out my door every morning. It was just picking out the common stuff there and trying to nail that down and start sorting it out by camp A, something I recognize, or camp B, something I don't. Um, and then start kind of adjusting my ear, you know, as as migration was building up, um, hearing more and more in a dawn chorus, filtering out what I don't know, tracking that down, finding it, going through the whole process of like, watching a bird sing to actually, you know, commit it to memory. Um, I also, I would take a guess. I, I totally, this sounds so nerdy, but <laughs> I would like make myself guess what bird it was and actually consciously think through why I thought that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Go find the bird and yeah. then decide if I was right or wrong <laughs> and go from there. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, so it's just, I still think like I'm, I'm building on that and I mean, I'm, you know, comfortable with the birds around West Virginia now. And if I hear a chip or something, I don't recognize it's still like, okay, this falls in camp B let's go find it. So it's kind of a, a muscle memory for the pattern that I use now. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. I the muscle memory thing is so true, right? Like I feel like every, you know, and, and I started out super really visual as well and, and evolved into more of an, an, an oral, if you will, an audio uh, birder as well. It took me a long time. And I think it was like you were mm -hmm. saying, actually seeing something like a house wren, you know, you hear the song, but then to actually see the whole bird's body quivering and the tail, you know, go, you know, moving all over the place. When you see how animated a bird is when it's singing, I think then you think, boy, this is, you know, they make some cool sounds, but when you see how much the sound means to the bird, then it really becomes like, okay, I want to learn more about this. I want to get into this. And so I kind of did the same thing where I started being like, okay, if I don't recognize something, 
track it down, you know, chase it down, try to figure it out. And then, and, and the muscle memory is a real thing. Like it happens to me all the time still where I will hear a sound that I know, especially if, it, if it's like out of context, if I'm listening to something on television or a movie and I'll, I'll bet I know that call, I recognize that call, but I cannot remember what it is, you know, like I recognize yeah. that sound. And, uh, and I find that especially with like warblers and spring for years, it took me a long time before like, you know, be like, okay, yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, like a, a, you know, a perula or whatever, like, you know, I, I took multiple seasons before I kind of was able to, uh, incorporate that sound into like, you know, kind of burn it into your brain. And, uh, and, but with other stuff, it's still, I kind of have to hear it every year to, to be and track it down to be sure. Um, but I like that process. Yeah. Well, like you said, um, hearing it like in a movie or, or somewhere out of context too, then you're, you're really challenging yourself. Um, same with like, you know, the flycatcher identification. Okay. If you're seeing something in Canada that should be in South America, then it's like, Whoa, you don't have the context that at least I realize I rely on, uh, so much to, to put with that. Um, but speaking of the muscle memory, this can be a future episode, but, uh, I, I know Alvaro, you do a whole talk on like birding fast and slow and mm-hmm. developing those muscle memories. Um, so I'm, I'm throwing that out there that we need to devote an episode to that at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that you, what what you said about like doing the one mile walk and your uh, dog um, walking, kind of hearing birds, that's really key. So it's, you know, what people call patch birding, going back to the same place sort of over and over and over again. Um, and it's uh, one of the best ways to learn birds in, in all ways, because you, you've decreased the the variables in a sense, right? You're like, I feel like if you were trying to learn Spanish, right, you would go to a place where everybody speaks Spanish. That would be the best way to do it. You know, so you go to, you know, Guatemala, but the way birders try to learn birdsong is almost like somebody trying to learn Spanish at an international airport. Like there's, you know, every language being spoken and you're kind of trying to pick out what's going on. Birders tend to go, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go here today because it's hot, you know, and a rare bird showed up over there. I'm going to go over there. So you're going all over the place and you don't have like this focus of like decreasing your variables that makes you able to sort of make, make things, make sense of things. Right. So I think it's yeah. really what you're doing is exactly in the birding fast and slow world would be what you should be doing. Like kind of really, (laughs) you know, yeah. I want to hear, learn birds hearing, you know, what they sound like and so on, decrease the variable somehow. Yeah. Don't be all over the place. Yeah. Well, then it's so cool to see. Yeah. Then you're seeing like the patterns because, you know, even like at your feeder or whatever, you, you have your typical birds and at least, sometimes you can pick out individuals or see what's changing. So then it's not just seeing the calls, but seeing like where and when and why they're using the calls and why it's something different this day. And like, you really start to get more of like, not just memorizing what they're saying or <laughs> calling, um, but actually getting a lot more depth to, to that whole world that the birds are using to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they, there's, was it some of our friends call it birding? You, you go without your binoculars, just like, just to like, you know, naked birding. Yeah. Naked yeah, birding. Naked yeah. Birding. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, you know, 
to, to me, I think uh, also ear birding is where even experienced birders have some level of of concern about how well they're doing. Absolutely, you know? and, yes. And so if, if you're out there and you're leading uh, a trip with neophyte birders, you, you, you feel very confident in your hearing, you know, abilities. But if, you know, Michael O'Brien is sitting next to you, you, you basically right. go, nope. so uh, <laughs> what was that, Michael? You know, like <laughs> and, and there, there's an element that is different than visual, um, you know, identification in a sense we a lot of people feel much more confident on visual identification and uh, just our brain works differently with with audio info and i sometimes have to to learn things make a, a spectrogram to actually visually see what the difference is between a song sparrow and a buick's wren multi-part mm-hmm. songs and then just sort of identify oh like Song sparrows never have buzzes. You know, they might have trills, but they don't have buzzes or they don't have chuck notes, you know, like interspersed. And I was like, oh, those are all wren things. So then I incorporate that into my thinking. Okay, so if you hear a bunch of buzzes or little chip chuck notes, in be- okay, that's the wren. Um, and, you know, it's, they can be harder. Um, a lot of these birds are harder than you think when you you lose your confidence with them. You know, very simple things sometimes for us here, like you know, Stellar's Jay and California Scrub Jay. Most of the time, they just come very obvious, and then there's other times where you're just like, "Which one is that?" You know, and your brain goes kind of blank. And if you have some structure behind it, where you go, "Okay." One of them does this and one of them does that. And the only way that I can get that structure is often by seeing it visually in, in a computer-generated spectrogram, which is sort of the way my brain works. You know. Yeah. I, I sit there and like trace with my hand. I follow mm-hmm. the song with my hand because I'm, I'm completely visualizing that as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's next level, Molly. I can't, I like, I, I, it took me forever to even understand how a spectrogram works. Like, you know, I've I've finally gotten into recording more. Like I was into it for a little while, but I've kind of gotten back into it, you know, using the phone and, and trying to, I enjoy building my um, media library in in eBird. So I'm like trying to get better about Mm -hmm. recording. And I, I kind of look on the illustrated checklist for some of my local patches and I'm like, I'm going to try to add more stuff. So I, I look at the, the spectrogram, but I, that's not, hasn't been an effective way to date for me to learn stuff, but I certainly agree that, um, you know, it, it's true that I, I suffer from that trepidation you, you talk about Al, where at times it, it, I think people don't realize too that, or don't think sometimes that, you know, sometimes you don't see something well, um, you know, like you see, you catch a flicker of, of, uh, not the bird, but you just catch like a brief sighting of something and you can't be sure what it was. And the same thing is true for some of the sounds, right? Sometimes you hear something, but you just, you don't hear it well. And so there's a difference between hearing something well and being like, I know that's what that is, you know, and just catching something and be like, am I hearing this? No. Yeah. Well, okay. Question for both of you. Do you consider yourselves like musically inclined? Hmm. Do, you, do you consider punk rock music yeah. <laughs> or 90s hip hop? Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I, I think no, about this and kind of I'm separate. Not, yeah. Like, yeah, it, it seems like more than the average number of birders are, um, you know, or have like grown up around music a lot more closely. And I, I kind of 
just observe that. I guess I don't have any conclusions to make, but I think that there's like, there's the train of thought and I'm not someone who's ever had like formal music lessons or anything, but just different ways that people use um, sound and like how you interpret it and learn it, which happens visually as well, I guess. But I don't think that we talk about that process as much. Yeah, Yeah. it's true. I I would say that in, in leading people around, there have been some very musical people, like the professional musicians that have told me that they cannot do bird sound, um, that it doesn't function in their head like music. And others who who have been like amazing with bird sound that aren't musically inclined. And then then the also the expectations. Some musically inclined people who know out music and and can almost um use that as a as a tool set to explain what they're hearing. So it seems to be like all over the place. Like as I would say there's <laughs> No correlation, but it can be a, a thing. Like there are. Well, you're some, shooting my theory pretty hard here. I, I know. I, I got to say, I, I am uh, well, from. Uh, that's all right. But, Put it this that, way, though. Yeah, I'm not. You know, I, 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 that's my experience from. You know, I do think there's like. There. I remember. I forget who it was, Albro. I think I don't know if it was you or, or somebody else was saying how a lot of people they don't even really try to learn. Um, bird sound. Mm-hmm. You know, some people just think that's that's too that's next level. That's too difficult. That's too much to tackle. You know, that seems you know just just overwhelming somehow. And I remember one of uh, a colleague somewhere saying, you know, what I tell people is that if you can if you can recognize "Happy Birthday" the song "Happy Birthday" from just the first few notes, like. Happy birthday. Like if you can just recognize it from that, then you can. Oh, now learn. I got it in my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's a quality <laughs> song. Yeah. If you, but if you can recognize it from just that little snippet, you know, which virtually anybody can, then you can learn bird songs too. And it, and it becomes just recognition. But I do think also there are people like I, I've been around people with perfect pitch. Um, and I think they process bird sounds in a different way is in my mm-hmm. opinion. One thing is to recognize. The other thing is memory for song. That's a different thing. Yeah. You know? So I, I think, too, people underestimate, like, you don't have to necessarily identify the species by sound to make it useful because you get so much out of just the spatial awareness of what's around or, or just kind of picking up on the, the type of sound and what that could clue you into what the bird's doing to find it. Um, or just whether or not you can identify it, recognizing if it's something familiar or not too. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that bird sound can be helpful in identifying birds besides just knowing what bird is making the sound. Yeah. It certainly helps with behavior too. If you can decide what kind of bird sound you're hearing, if it's a call note, if it's a song, if it's a scold, you know, a contact call, you know, they they do make, I think people don't necessarily always think about the different kinds of sounds that birds make and in what context. You know, uh, George, you were saying about next level type stuff and bird sound. And I've thought the same thing about the nocturnal flight calls. And, you know, some, especially, you know, the, there's these younger hotshot birders who, you know, are doing all of this great stuff, figuring yeah, really out cutting these edge, little, that, some of that nocturnal cutting it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking like, you know what? I mean, this was, this was even a few, some years ago. I like, I just don't 
know this stuff. I can't remember these calls. It's just like, maybe I'm just beyond this. And uh, felt little trepidation with all this stuff and thinking, ah, oh, man, it's it's way too much. It's like next level stuff. And I don't get to hear them that much on the West Coast anyways. But I kind of got, now have a perfect reason to sort of say I can't do that. It's because I went half deaf you know, a few years ago. I've got a way out. You know, I don't have to, I say, I, I just, I can't do it anymore. You know, like, a, you know, but I actually got to say, I never was quite, um, you know, that was just next level stuff to me. And sometimes you have to realize there's some things that just, you don't, you're not necessarily going to have to do or necessarily are good at. And it's, it's okay. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I was never into that. And, you know, I, I can tell you my deafness story too, if you want, but yeah, I, I think it would be, I mean, as somebody who really, you know, you know, I, I know it, it must've been just a crazy experience for you in, in more ways than one. Um, but yeah, like, and, and I'd be particularly curious to hear, you know, like you, 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 I know how you, you know, lost that the hearing in one ear and, but you've, you've picked some up again too. Right. But maybe, Maybe, you know, like you've had to relearn, I guess is what I mean to say, uh, how yeah. you listen. And I think people would be interested to hear about that journey. So, yeah, yeah here, like um, I'll back up and say that all of this happened, this this episode of me losing my hearing when I was on tour in Bhutan. And then people blame all sorts of things, you know, I'm the traveler, whatever. The first actual information that I had that something was wrong happened while I was at home. So whatever it was, I, I, it happened at home and it just happened to finish. <laughs> it finished me off when I was on in travel. In fact, I was running on a Friday, let's say, and Monday I was up to leave or Sunday I was to leave for, for my tour and I was running and I felt dizzy in my run in a weird way, like where I'd never felt dizzy like that before ever in my life. And I thought, well, that's weird. Maybe I didn't drink enough water. But as I got into my tour, I and this is about four years ago, I realized that the dizziness kept on appearing like over the days, you know, like it had little spells. And, and I would get this like vertigo dizziness with uh, intense ringing in my ear, like like a jet engine. And that's when I started saying, oh, there's something weirdly wrong here. And I had no idea what was going on. And uh, I just sort of thought, okay, whatever this is, you know, it'll go away. You know, I could just sort of, you'd, uh, I had no, it'll pass. Just, yeah. it'll pass. I was deep into this tour, like several days into it. And, um, and it was, yeah, maybe four or five days. I actually, you know what I did, talk about Eber lists of note. I I found the last Ebert list as a hearing person, fully hearing person, 25th of April, 2017. Wow. And it was hmm. awesome because there was a we were at this river and and it was there were shorebirds. So I Lesser Sand Plover was there, Kentish, Little Ring Plover. I spotted my I think it was might have been my life for Timming stint. Mm. And also a vagrant gull, my first ever slender build gull was there. Nice. Of course and I was just going, gull. you know, going nuts, <laughs> you know, with all this stuff and, you know, really excited about what we were seeing. And um, 
then suddenly that that dizziness came on and the intense tinnitus and and I couldn't stand up. I actually fell to the ground. Wow. You know, and all the, the tour participants and the co-guides are like, Oh, what's going on? You know, and I almost felt like it was you know, like a you know, Monty Python movie. Oh, I'll be all right. You know, it's just a little flesh wound here, but suddenly I'm like <laughs> sick as a dog on the ground and cannot stand up. And the, the, you know, the, the, we had a big, a good team of people help the two guides and a driver who was also a, a birding guide. So we, and they knew, they know the place backwards and forwards. So they said, yeah, there's a clinic right here. Let's go and, you know, check you out. And, um, it was that where it started, you know, they, they gave me some pain, um, you know, some medication and stuff. And they said, you, you know, you're, you cannot continue. You've got to go back to the hotel. So I went back to the hotel and I thought maybe this would, again, would pass. And, you know, I left my scope with the group or whatever. And in the end, I had to just go to the city, you know, and, and, and sort all this out. And I eventually went home, but the the weirdest thing was sort of the day after is receiving a call basically to 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 figure out the appointment at the at the you know the the guy who's going to come and get us you know to to go to back to the to the big you know the bigger city in Bhutan and I'm go hello hello there's something wrong with this phone I mean I I couldn't mm, I couldn't hear, couldn't hear what was going on and then suddenly like my eyes open I'm like oh crap. I think mm-hmm. I can't hear. And I, I put it on the other side and I could hear. And wow. I realized like I've lost all of my hearing, like all of it. You know, it's just like from one day to the next. And I was still dizzy and so forth. And um, and uh, they patched me up. Uh, there's some really amazing doctors in Bhutan from India, actually. And, you know, they, they said, you, you know, there's a bunch of tests we can't do here. You better go home. So I went home. Um, Tour actually ran perfectly well without me, which is, you know, kind of, you know, interesting to think about. The fact that <laughs> maybe I'm not that necessary. The people had a great time and they used my scope. And, nice. I'm um, sure it was, it was because good. you set it up so expertly, Al. That it, That's it right. It was, it was, it was the exact, it's just a great country to travel in. Yeah. Um, I, I love Bhutan. I can't wait to get back. Um, but so it started this whole thing of doctors and trying to figure out what happened, mysteries. They call it sudden sensory neural hearing loss. And it just means we have no idea why people lose their hearing. This is what it means. Yeah. Um, it could be a virus. It could be all sorts of things. Viral mm-hmm. issues might be the main ones and that it attacks your inner ear. And, and then it's sort of like, oh, well, can you get a hearing aid? You can't because your ear actually works. The ear, eardrum all works. It's the internal connection between your inner ear and your nerve that doesn't work. So I went through all sorts of things that tried to fix it and nothing. And that tinnitus uh, or tinnitus, you know, actually is probably the way that people pronounce it. It's been, it's continued for years. And this, just this spring, I was able, due to changes in the, in what, health insurance can cover here in the US, I was able to get a cochlear implant, which is pretty amazing um, because it's the only sense that you can a- actually 
have a machine try and recreate out of all of our senses. We don't have anything else other than hearing where we have like machinery that can sort of do it, but it's very basic. So, you know, to, to tell you what I really lost, um, there were people who would, I remember used to sort of in, in a good way, try to make me feel good about things by saying, well, at least you've got your other ear, you know, and it makes sense, right? You're sort of like, you're just losing half your hearing, but it's way more than that. One of the things I learned was just like with sight, you have three-dimensional, you know, sort of viewing from having two, two eyes. It's the same with ears. So when you have only one ear, you can hear something, especially something loud, but you have no idea where it's coming from. And you have no idea if you should focus on it or not. It just, everything comes in as flat sound. So everything becomes scary. You have no idea where things come from. So you're, you're in the Safeway or whatever your, you know, shopping center or something and noises are coming at you from all places and you're just tense and you're just really like feel vulnerable because you don't, can't you have no, you know, so, right. Yeah. Somebody comes through with a cart and it just sounds like something is going to hit you. You have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So that was one of the main things that really freaked me out. It's like, oh, wow, I can't hear where things are coming from. But also your brain knows to focus on certain sounds. Like if you're talking to somebody, it knows, okay, that person's five feet away. I triangulate to that person. I know I'm talking to them and not to the people in the bar all the other people. But if you have one ear, everything comes in solidly, Same, like yeah. flat. And that was really eye-opening as a birder to think, oh, I had all of these things that were available to me. Now they're gone. And then you th- sort of that, that whole 3D hearing thing is you realize that you didn't just lose half your hearing. You lost 75% of your hearing. And with this implant, Although it's really rudimentary and basic, and the sound is not even one-tenth of the quality, I can now hear things where they're coming from, and I feel more comfortable like in places where I can hear things. You can triangulate a lot more. Triangulate better than before. I can hear when Mm -hmm. a car is behind me. It's been fantastic, and I'm still my brain is getting rewired to understand all of this noise, uh, that sound, not noise, but sound. And as it's gotten better, it's also the tinnitus or has been dropping in, in that it's, it's uh, the brain isn't creating sound that it, it thinks it should be there because you are getting a signal coming in. Um, and it, you know, involves surgery and so on, which was actually pretty easy. I didn't suffer much from the surgery. How, long have, how long have you had the implant now? since the spring. So okay. it, and it's many months, um, of learning, uh, to do it. And in, in the U S it's, it's brand new for, for, um, most people who have single-sided hearing loss. Most yeah. cochlear implants have been, um, done in the U S on, on double-sided hearing loss. I talked to so, somebody who had one done. Yeah. I want to say this was a while ago, so I'm a little rusty on what they said, but I remember them telling me that they, that it took them, like eight months to a year before they felt like they had fully kind of integrated it into their, yeah. into their hearing and that there was a learning period. And so yeah. you're experiencing that uh, still now, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's, 
it's always a cliche when something happens that's negative that people will say, you know, but there were some um, bright sides to all of this. And I have to say that there have been for me. And and it, it's obviously, you know, I don't want to say I want to give an arm and a leg for my hearing. <laughs> that's just, you know, I still want that <laughs> arm and the leg, you know. You still have the other leg, Alvaro. You know, it's okay. Um, no, but I... I would love to be able to go back, uh, obviously, to having two working ears. Yet the the ability to sort of understand focus and and sort of how you you listen for things, to pay attention to sounds, not just for identifying a bird, but just for the beauty of sound, and knowing about all this three. Stuff and now I turn my head a lot more as a birder. I would say to people, "You're not hearing most of the things that are behind you, um, and you you probably have a dominant ear. Mm-hmm. And even if you're have lost a little bit of your hearing, 10, 15, 20 percent on let's say one ear, you are not getting as much of that three dimensional sound as you think. And by turning your head, you're actually um, getting a better read on what you're hearing." I also, as a as somebody who goes out with people, sometimes older people, I've gotten a real understanding of kind of a compassion for the fact that we cannot see the same, we cannot hear the same, we cannot walk the same. And and as a younger birder, you know, I remember thinking like, can't you see that, you know, the warbler's right there in the bush, you know, and, and I'd be showing somebody with lacking the compassion to understand that maybe they couldn't see that because of whatever was going on in their physiology, right? So I think those things have been really kind of important and, and useful to me in a way that uh, you just, uh, I may not have thought about those things before. And now I'm thinking about them and I'm also thinking about how the, um, what really sort of pulled me through all this was the birds themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people go through intense depression and uh, all sorts of things that happen because you've lost your hearing. You, maybe you become a little antisocial. You don't go to bars anymore because it's too, too, it's just too much or you, you don't hang out with crowds of people or, but going out to the woods or going out, you know, birding for me was the only time I would feel normal. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was sort of really in the in the first throes of of getting used to this, and it's what kind of pulled me through. So I feel like now I owe it to the birds and owe it to people to sh- to also show them that birding has more benefits than just you know the fun aspect of it. It's a real yeah. health thing. Like it is. I really feel like everybody in the world should be birding at Absolutely. one level or another, everybody yeah. that it's going to be good for them. So that's my, that's my hearing story in kind yeah. of a nutshell. I, hopefully it wasn't wow. too long winded, but yeah. no, it's, it's great. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, couple, really interesting. A couple points just to kind of follow up on that. One is which you talk about benefits of, of, of health uh, in, you know, the birding brings. And I did want to mention, uh, all our, our good friend, Holly Merker has a book out ornotherapy, um, and is doing all sorts of good work on that front and definitely recommend people check out Holly Merker's work. Um, and about mindfulness and birding. And yeah, there are, she, she could tell you all about 
people that have benefited in hyper stressful situations and, and, and as a cancer survivor herself and credits birds for getting her through a difficult time. Alvaro, your, uh, pot, your, I think it was a YouTube video you did on this process, right? Uh, yeah. There, there's a yeah, friend for, of mine. For Holly. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, she, she's used it in some presentations sort of as a test, not test case, but I guess somebody's experience where I already had birds in my life. If I hadn't had birds in my life, I don't know what that whole thing would have been like. It would yeah. have been really, really bad. Well, I can tell so, you that a, there's a friend of mine who at 27 had the same exact experience that you did and um, watched your video on it. And he said he found it very helpful. Um, hmm. So I do. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine incredibly traumatic thing. Um, but as you say, you, you know, you, you, you adapt, you adjust and, uh, and it's, it's, it's an interesting, fascinating story. So thanks. Thanks you, for that. You know, uh, I, I think, uh, there's, when things happen that are bad or negative, people always sort of go right to that. Like, why me? Right. Why me? You know, what, what did I do wrong? What did I and uh, sometimes, especially with some of these health things, they're just, they're so random that maybe because I'm, I'm a scientist and I watch natural events and the randomness of like a, a small Beldelania getting to Quebec, that I, I felt some certain peace in, in the fact that why not me was the answer. And that's just sort of the way nature is. And and uh, you get hit with something, and yeah, you're sort of part of this random world. And uh, I've found some weird, you know, not I wouldn't say peace or or something, but explanation in that. I, the question for me was not why me, but why not me. So yeah, <laughs> it's a little deep there. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Trying to, I don't want to bring people down. <laughs> nice. No. That's not bringing people down. This is, this is a good episode, guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we are coming up on the hour. There's a couple other things I wanted to uh, touch on. First, Molly, any Halloween plans? Are you dressing up? No Halloween plans. All of our free time lately, um, we, we just closed on property. We got 40 acres here uh, around home. So all of our free time has been sorting out um basically conservation programs and different offerings, which is really, really fun. Um, But we're kind of in the middle of all these processes of um, working with um, NCRS, which is uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service. And that's like a USDA thing and some state level things on on some golden winged warbler habitat, looking at like some Henslow sparrow habitat. also looking at a program that I've been working with for the past year, which is a um, carbon sequestration program for, cool. for small landowners. So that's my Halloween plans is being out on the property and just <laughs> making decisions on what's getting enrolled. Wow. Where. Well, um, if, if you got, yeah. if you got golden wing warblers <laughs> and Henslow sparrows on your property, I'm moving in for a couple of weeks come, <laughs> come May. I'll oh, tell you that. Man. Yeah. I wish we had looked at it earlier so I could know our starting point. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we have Henslow sparrows on it right now, but I think we could. I th- there could have been golden winged warblers there. I'm quite excited. That's that <laughs> is way cool. That is way cool. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. Al, you dressing up for Halloween? 
Um, we're going to see. I, it, it might happen. Um, I've, uh, there's still time, but I'm, I'm, I'm leaving to go to Monterey tonight, partially to do a, um, a pelagic tomorrow, but also leaving because my teenage daughter is having a Halloween party here. Oh, so you're getting out of Dodge. I don't want to be anywhere <laughs> near yeah. that, you know? So, uh, and Katya said, you better leave, you know? She's you, like, yeah, you, you better, just get out of here. You know, yeah. You know, and I'm like, don't touch my bird books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're George, yeah. how about you? I, I'm actually, I'm not, I was really hoping you guys would have some good stuff. I don't have any plans. I, maybe I'll go, I, I went, you know, when I didn't want to dress up, I would say I'm going as a pedestrian. That's what I'm going to be for Halloween this year. Um, maybe I'll go as, as sort of a middle-aged birder this year instead. But um, yeah, no, no plans. I am going to a Halloween party. One, a good friend of ours, it's her birthday is is Mischief Night, which I always think is like an awesome, awesome day to ha- like be like, yeah, my birthday's on Mischief Night. Uh, so we are going to a Halloween party where I gather some people will be dressed. It would not surprise me if Kristen actually already has a costume she hasn't told me about and and shows up uh, in some state of some state of dress. Um, so and it could be even that she has plans for me that I'm unaware of. So if I do end up dressing up, I will share pictures and and uh, and but I, I have no no such plans as of yet. So, so you know online. On Facebook and these places, you know, there's pictures coming through of really good costumes people have created. I saw the best one ever. It was a kid. Not Squid Game. Um, it seems like everybody's doing Squid Game. No, no. Yeah. This is old school. Old okay. school. And and it relates to us here. Um, uh, kind of faux fur coat, little square kind of 60s purse, kind of bouffant hair do this girl's got. And then crows fake crows all around her attacking her. Wow. So it looks like Tippy Hedren from the birds. And it was, it was awesome. Like, I was like, who thought of this? I like, Oh, that, great. That's pretty sweet. Look for it. That yeah. was good. Yeah. That's darn good. It was, it was man. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's inspiring stuff right there. I wish I could pull that off. I mean, yeah. if I could, I'd, you don't think it so? Just I weird. Think if it was me. With a Buffon, Albro. I think that'd be a good look. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah, I could, you know, yeah. might happen. Worth a shot. Have to, <laughs> the, you know, fake fur coat. It would have to be fake, of course. Yeah, yeah. faux fur. Uh, might, fur. Might not have any my size, you know. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you're pretty boxy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, um, yeah, a couple things. We should, we should wrap up here. But um, one thing I did want to mention is that – Molly and I, as well as a number of other friends, are headed to Uganda soon, where we hope to commune with mountain gorillas and chimpanzees and hopefully a shoebill. Shoebill would be so cool. It's like kind of an all-time epic bird to try to see. And um, yeah, we plan to do some recording while there and share some of the stories um, with, with, uh, with you all while we're there and with our, our group of friends that we're traveling with. So keep an eye out for that. I think we will have one more episode between, uh, now and our departure. Uh, final thoughts, Alvaro. Um, boy, I think I talked too much already. Uh, have a good (laughs) fall, have a good Halloween and, um, yeah, every, everybody just go out 
bird and maybe take that idea of 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 just sort of having birds be something that puts you a little bit more in peace is uh, is a good one to sort of leave people with. Right on, right on. Good stuff, Molly. Anything else you want to uh, let folks know about before we sign off here? Yeah, I think I'll kind of piggyback off of that. And I know we already mentioned ornotherapy. Um, and I also want to call out birdability. We just had birdability week. Yes. Um, what, last week or the week before? Last week. I and think, yeah. they, uh, yeah, their their mission is to make birding for everybody. And uh, they, they've been in the works for a few years, maybe officially a nonprofit as of this year. But if you go to birdability.org, there are so many resources and so many ways that anybody can help make birding. Uh, available and something that's an option for everyone to enjoy. It, it's a really cool site and a really cool organization. Yeah. Talk about a way you could change people's lives. That's uh, that's a big one. That would be, that's huge. Doing amazing work there. Great. Well, thanks guys. Um, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back again here probably in a couple weeks with another new episode. Let us know what you want to talk about. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week, guys. Thanks Bye. everybody.